Heavenly Father, we do trust you because we know that you are the God who rules all things and that you are the God who loves us. And we pray that you help us to trust you now as we come to your word. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts to what you have to say to us uh, and that you would give us hearts that long to obey you and are willing to do that even when it's tough. And we pray that you enable me, that you will strengthen me by your spirit, speak your words rightly and in his power. And may you be working among us, bring glory to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Uh, and can I get you to turn with me, please, to Ezra chapter 9 and 10? Ezra chapter 9 and 10. If you're using the yellow sticker Bible, it's on page 472. And if you're using the green sticker Bible, it's on page 395. Thank you. Uh, there's also in uh, one of the uh, handouts that you received an outline of where we're going. Uh, it would be helpful to have that in front of you as well, so you can see where we're up to. Uh, and some people like to take notes to help them concentrate, and so uh, you can do that on the outline as well. But let me start by, by asking you a question. Is there something in your life that you know is wrong, but it's too difficult to change? Is there something that you're doing that you know is displeasing to God, but it's really hard to do something about it. Maybe it's because it's something or someone you don't want to give up. Maybe it's because other people are affected as well. Let's do a mind sweep together. Could it be something at work? Could it be something at home? Something in the area of your relationships, your, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your, or a friend of some sort. Something to do with being a parent or being the child of a parent. Something to do with your relatives. Something in the area of personal finance or your business. In the area of hobbies or recreation? Could it be something to do with your computer or your smartphone? With internet or the social media? Something to do with an area of ministry or church or your small group? Or travel? Is there something in your life that you know is wrong, but it's too difficult to change? be too painful to put it right. Well, in our passage today, we will see that something was terribly wrong with Israel. And we will see the painful things they had to do to put it right. Over the past few weeks, we've seen God at work restoring His people. I remember because of their sin, God has sent Israel into, into exile. 
and the Babylonians had come. They had destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, and Judah, that particular part, had been taken away into Babylon, into exile. But God promised that one day He would bring them back. And when He did, it was going to be so glorious that, that even the, the, the exodus from Egypt would be small in comparison. And God would bring them in the land. He would make a new covenant with them where He will forgive all their sins. He will give them new hearts that truly love Him and obey Him. He will give them a new king, King David, who will rule over them forever. He will give them a new temple from which living water would flow and give life to the nations. And well, in Ezra so far, God had brought His people back. And, and actually, He had done so in quite remarkable ways. He had turned the heart of King Cyrus, the Persian conqueror of Babylon, so that his policy would be to return people to their homelands. And a whole lot of exiles had come back in chapter 2. Work on the temple had started in chapter 3, had stopped because of discouragements and opposition in chapter 4, but was completed with the king's blessing in chapter 6. And many years later, in chapter 7, a scribe who was still in exile set his heart to study God's law and to do it and to go back to Israel and to teach it. And this was Ezra. And he was sent back by the king, the Persian king, not only to do that, but to set up a legal system for the land. And he was given every possible resource for his work and for the temple. And so in chapter 8, he went back to Israel with another group of exiles. And at the end of chapter 8, all the exiles returned, offered burnt offerings to God and his temple, and Dehid and Ezra delivered messages from the king to all the officials, eliciting help from them. Surely God was blessing his people. It didn't seem as great as what the prophets had said, but behind all the movements and all the decrees of the government officials, you can still see that God was at work fulfilling his promise and restoring his people. And so when we come to chapter 9, we are in a big surprise. Which, actually, if we've read the rest of the Bible, we shouldn't find that surprising. Yeah? We're one third of the way through the Bible here, and we know already every time something good happens, what happens? Human sin comes and mucks it up. And here we go again. Chapter 9, verse 1. And after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said... The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. And they've taken some of their daughters to be wives for them and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. Oh, dear, 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 dear. Remember what God had said to his people in Deuteronomy 7 uh, about the people in the land. It's coming on the next slide. Here's what God said, Deuteronomy 7. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons from following me to serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. And remember, that's what happened, isn't it, in Israel's history. Remember what triggered the split in the northern kingdom and southern kingdom that started that whole slide downhill that ends up in the exile? It's when Solomon disobeyed God's command, and he takes all these foreign wives, and they turn his heart against God. Israel has been down this path before. And it's led to the disaster of the exile. And now God has brought them back from the exile. 
and they go back doing the same thing. They are marrying those whose hearts are not for God, but worship other gods. And the Holy Seed, these people set apart for God, are mixing themselves with the people who are not. These are the people that God had promised Abraham that through them all the nations were going to be blessed. These are the people from whom the Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the servant who will save his people and rule the world were going to come from this seed. This is the people of God. And now they're in danger of losing their identity. God had kept them as a people right through the exile and now they're in danger of exterminating themselves by interbreeding. Now, if the people of the land had become Jews and fully embraced the God of Israel and His law, that would have been a different matter. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 21, you go back to chapter 6, verse 21, keep your finger in chapter 9, but you go back to chapter 6, verse 21, you see this. It's uh, the Passover, when they started the Passover again, he said, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. All right? That's a good thing. Those people of the land who had separated themselves and come to worship the God of Israel and become one of God's people, that's fine. So this is not about people like Ruth or Rahab who had turned from from, from, from serving idols to, to, to be worshippers of God. No, 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 no. His problem is not foreigners becoming one of God's people. It's God's people intermarrying with foreigners who remain foreigners. These are the people who are mixing Israel's seed with their seed. Israel's worship with their worship. Israel's God with their God. Their religious practices Oh, in verse 1 are called abominations. They'll be called abominations again in verse 11 and in verse 14. You see, God's people, the exiles who had first come back, the pioneers of God's people restored, they had been faithless. It's the only word for it. After making the great sacrifice of coming back from Babylon, because they'd settled down in Babylon. They'd been there for ages. Now they come. It's a big sacrifice to come back and pioneer. They made the big sacrifice to come back to the land. And then they wreck it by disobeying God. And they put the purity and holiness of God's people at risk. And it says their leaders were the primary culprits in this calamity. And friends... There are times when Christians can be like that as well, can't we? There are those who make big sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, and because they've already made big sacrifices, then they become callous. And as years go on, they fall into sin. And leaders need to be especially careful, because we can lead whole groups of people down this terrible path. So how does Ezra respond when he hears the news? Well, in verse 3, when he hears about what's happened, he tears his garment and his cloak, he, he pulls his hair from his head and his beard, and he sits down appalled. It's, it's like he's in a state of shock and mourning and grief. And then in verse 4, all who tremble at the words of the God of Israel, those, those who take God's commandments seriously, they gather around him 
And they sit there appalled until evening. Until, verse 4, the evening sacrifice. The time when sacrifice would be made to atone for sin. And so Ezra sits there and waits for the evening sacrifice. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, verse 5, he gets up from his fasting with his garments and cloak torn. He falls on his knees. He spreads out his hand to the Lord God, which is the, the posture of prayer. And this is what he prays, a long prayer here. He says, Oh my God, verse 6, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given to the hands of the king of the lands, to the sword, to the captive, to plundering, to utter shame as is today. See, history. Because of this sin. And now he says, verse 8, Now for a brief moment favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within the holy place that God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving for our slavery. For, for we are slaves and yet God has not forsaken us in our slavery but extend his steadfast love before the king of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. He, he knows that the big promises haven't been fulfilled yet but he's got a little bit. And what do they do with this little bit? Verse 10. And now, O oh God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, <coughs> The land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, filled with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace on prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance for your children forever. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you've consumed us? So there should be no remnant, none who escape. O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we have left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we stand before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you. Because of this. Big prayer of confession, isn't it? Notice how he identifies with the people. He doesn't go, oh God, look at all those people. Who have done. I'm, I'm, I'm not like that. huh? Oh, he isn't like that. But he identifies with them. He's, he's part of God's people. He's speaking to God on behalf of his people. They're, they're seen corporately. They're seen together. And he's a leader of God's people. You see, I'm not just talking about individuals here. As a people, they've sinned before. As a people, they were sent into exile. As a people, they've been restored. And like a dog goes back to his vomit, as a people, they've gone back to the very sins that led them into the exile in the first place. And so Ezra 
on behalf of God's people, cries to God in confession. And in chapter 10, verse 1, it tells us that as he does that, he's weeping, casting himself down before the house of God. And as Ezra is doing this in the temple, uh, people are gathering around him. See, what we've read, you thought it was long, but actually it's a very short prayer. It must must be a summary of the things he's saying because as he prays, as he weeps, as he confesses, word is going out about what's happening. And the people are coming in. People are coming in and joining him. And so at the end, there's a great assembly in verse 1 of men and women and children gathered out of Israel and the people are weeping bitterly. This is a revival time. They're all weeping bitterly in repentance. And then one of them, Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, he makes a proposal. He says to Ezra in verse 2, We've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. So here's the proposal to make a covenant with God to to put away these wives and children. We don't know what the details, what it's going to look like, how they're going to make sure they're going to be looked after, or they're going to be sent back to the original families. But whatever the case is, they say, let's make a covenant with God. To give them up. Right, now, this is not a God making a covenant with them. This is a, they are making a covenant with God. They're making a promise to God. They know they've sinned. They want to promise to make it right. And this is not an easy decision, is it? It's going to be hard. Putting things right after sinning often is. But they say, let's promise to do it. And you, Ezra, you're the leader. It's your job to lead the people. You do that, we will back you up. Godly leaders often need good backup to make tough decisions for the good of God's people. So what does Ezra do? Ezra listens to what Shechaniah says. He gets up and he speaks to the people. Starts with the leading priests and Levites. They agree to take an oath to do this. And when they agree, he moves on to all the people, and they also take the oath and swear to what's been said. This is tough. Were they going to do it? And then Ezra withdraws from the temple and goes back to one of the chambers, and he spends the night there. He doesn't eat or drink because he's mourning for the the faithlessness of the exiles, and, and he arranges a proclamation to be made throughout the whole of Judah and Jerusalem, and And the proclamation is to call all the returned exiles to come and assemble in Jerusalem in three days. And if they don't come, then all their property will be forfeited and they will be banned from the congregation of the exiles. They'll suffer the the fate of the outsiders who are put away. So the people come. They all come. Verse 9 tells us how all the men of Judah and Benjamin, the, the two main tribes in the return, they assemble there in Jerusalem in three days. And so there they are. 
all the men of Judah and Benjamin, they're sitting in this open square before the house of God, and they are trembling. Uh, this is not a matter to be taken lightly. Uh, uh, they are trembling because of the matter at hand, but, but, but also because of the heavy rain. You see, it's rainy season. It's cold and it's wet. And out there in the rain, listening to Ezra. And Ezra stands up to tell them off. He says in verse 10, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And they know He's right. They say, verse 12, It is so. We must do what you've said. But they do want to defer, and so they continue in verse 13. But the people are many. It's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand out in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or two. We have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let, let our officials stand in for the whole assembly, and let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and, and with them the elders the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter has turned away from us. And apart from a few people named in verse 15, the Proposal finds unanimous support, and so the exiles go back to their homes. Ezra selects some men who are to be leaders, and about ten days later they sit down and begin the process of working out who has the foreign wives. And it takes them two months to go through everyone. But on the first day of the first month, in verse 17, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And we see the role of shame there in verses 18 to 43. It starts with the priests themselves. In verse 18, they pledge to put away their wives and offer a guilt offering for sin. And then the Levites and the gatekeepers, people who had been set apart to work in God's house, in verse 23 and 24. And the rest of the people of Israel, in verse 25, all the way down to 43. The whole list of those who, in the words of 44, had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. They were to be put away because Israel were to be a holy people, God's holy people. Now, when we come to the new covenant, we too are called to be God's holy people, aren't we? We too are called to serve God with all our hearts, we too are called to put off everything that hinders. Though when it comes to non-Christian spouses, we're in a slightly different position than the people of Judah. We are told to marry only in the Lord. But for believers who are already married, we are told not to divorce our spouses. We are free if our non-Christian partner divorces us, but we are, we're not to divorce them on the basis that they are unbelievers. We saw that in our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't give us a green light to marry non-Christians because the danger is still there. They lead us astray. Uh, that's why Paul tells the widows they can remarry, but only in the Lord. But if you're already married, then this passage is not telling you to put your spouse away. That's not the application you're supposed to get from here. But before we look and see what the application really is for us, let's, let's think about where it goes in the New Testament. 
See, by the end of Ezra, things are still pretty disappointing, isn't it? This is not the glorious return the prophets have promised. The people who return, they seem to be as sinful as the ones who are sent away. And the reason is this. That return from exile here is just a shadow of the real final return. Even Ezra acknowledges that in his prayer. The real exile is not the exile of Judah from the land. That's the, that's the picture. The real exile is the exile of humanity from the garden. And that real exile is the, the exile that Jesus experienced on the God-forsaken cross. And the real return is not the coming back to the land. That's the picture. The real return happens with Christ is raised from the dead. It happens in us at one level when we put our trust in Him and we become raised as well, but it happens for us in that final way when we come to the new creation. Back to being God's people and God's place under God's blessing and rule like we were in the garden. So it's not surprising that things aren't quite as good as people thought they were going to be. That glorious rescue that eclipses the rescue from Egypt, that, that happened in Christ. And that will happen when He returns. The new covenant, well, that came through Jesus' death, where he's forgiven our sins and given us his spirit to love him and trust him. And, and when he returns, he will transform us fully so that we don't longer have that struggle against the flesh. And that King David, that, that, that David king who will rule God's people well, well, Jesus is that king. Crowned with a crown of thorns at his death, with a sign, King of the Jews, declared by God powerfully to be the king by his resurrection. And the temple? Well, Jesus is the true temple, that place where we meet God, the one from whom the Spirit comes and gives life to all he touches. The real return? Yes, this is this is a return. But it's a picture. The real return is yet to come in Jesus. But even so, in Ezra we have a picture that, that points us forward to Jesus. For in Ezra, God's people have a godly leader who leads his people to obey him. And our ultimate leader is Jesus Christ who leads us to obedience. Is Ezra takes the sin of God's people seriously and, and so does Jesus. Ezra waits for the evening sacrifice, and when that is offered, he prays for his people. Jesus offers himself by his death on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice, and then he ever lives to intercede for us. Ezra called his people to repent and do what is right, even though it's tough, and, and Jesus calls us the same. Jesus said, uh, coming up on the screen, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, obedience to Jesus comes above everything. Everything. And if something gets in the way, that's got to go. Ezra's like Jesus. And the repentance and obedience that Jesus calls us to is tough as well. So who are we like in the story? Uh, we're like Israel, aren't we? We are God's people who have been brought back from exile. and Like the Israelites, we are meant to be pure and holy as God's people. 
but so often we're not. And so we can identify with the people of Israel here. What Ezra found shocking was that the people of God had intermarried with the people of the land. But let me guess. What most of us found shocking was that they were told to put away their wives and children. You know what that means? It means we're looking at things the wrong way, aren't we? We too are influenced by the world. We don't realize that obeying God's word is the most important thing, even though it's costly. That is shocking. Let me tell you something even more shocking. I even hear of people in our church advising other people in our church to disobey God in particular areas when it's thought to be too painful to obey. That is really shocking. That should cause us to pull out our hair and tear our clothes and stand appalled. That should lead us to confess our sin and our guilt, for that is not the way that Jesus taught us to act. Jesus wants us to deal with our sin decisively. We should not tolerate it in our lives or encourage it in our congregations. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Deal decisively with whatever causes you to sin. Do it, no matter how painful. So let me finish by going back to the question that we opened with. Is there something wrong in your life that you need to put right? With Ezra and God's people, they did it in two steps, didn't they? They made the promise to God one day, and then they spent time to implement what they had promised because they couldn't sort it all out in just a single day. And maybe that's, maybe that's the same for you today. Maybe the thing that you need to extricate yourself from, the change you need to make, maybe it's too big for one day. What you can do is promise God right now. You can promise God to put it right, even though it's painful. You're someone who needs to make that promise? And if so, well, do that. And then start the process of implementing what you've promised. Or maybe you're someone who has already promised and now you need to deliver. That's painful too. So you keep delaying. Well, stop delaying, even if it's costly. You should never have put yourself in this position in the first place, but now you have, you've got to get out. Even though it's tough on you and it's tough on others. But you know that obeying God is the most important thing. Listen to your leader the Lord Jesus. He made the sacrifice for you. He keeps on praying for you. And his priority is your holiness. And he tells you, like Ezra told the men of Judah, take decisive action.
even if it's tough. Do it. Let's pray. Just give us a few moments of silence to reflect on what God is telling us, what the Spirit is pointing us to, and the areas in which He wants to convict us and call us to change. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for our sins. Whoever lives, whoever lives to intercede for us and who calls us to repentance and obedience. Please help us to listen to him and to obey him even when it's tough. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.